0: Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our study into the book of Isaiah by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here is this week's message.
1: If you have your Bibles, you go ahead and turn to Isaiah. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We're focusing in... On the gospel according to Isaiah 53. We've challenged ourselves that most of us, if we were going to tell somebody about Jesus and how to have a relationship with God, we would spend our time in the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, maybe one of the epistles, maybe the book of Romans. We'd be finding somewhere in there where it helped us to understand how to tell somebody about Jesus. But I want to challenge you, and we're looking at the fact that if you didn't have the New Testament and all you had was the Bible that the apostles had, which was the Old Testament, could you tell somebody about Jesus? Well, through Isaiah 53, we want you to be able to, and I want to be able to share Christ and his salvation with somebody through the Old Testament. For, see, we're here for this very purpose The reason we're here is that if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would have an opportunity to invite him into your heart. Because the most important thing is where you're going to spend eternity, all right? You're only going to live a certain number of years in this world, and then you're going to spend the rest of your existence in eternity. And what you do now determines where you're going to be in eternity, and we want you to be in heaven, a place prepared for you, a place place that Jesus is, a place that he wants you to be with him. And therefore, the gospel of Christ is important so that you know how to get to heaven. If you don't know that, we pray that you'll know him before this service is over. You should open your heart and your life to him, as many of us have, and ask Jesus to come into your life and to know him personally as Lord and Savior. If you do know Jesus, then you ought to want to hear the old, old story again. Amen? Just tell it to me again about what Jesus did for me. And you ought to want to hear it from the Old Testament perspective of what did Jesus do and what did it say in the, in the prophecy of Isaiah? What did it say about who Jesus was and what he would do? And the beautiful picture it paints of the gospel according to Isaiah. Fifty-three. Now, today, you're going to have to use your mind, all right? So I want to I want to get you started with some mental calisthenics. Y'all, y'all remember how you had to you, pee, you had to go get warmed up? So I want you to use your mind today. Many of us, we just come to church, we put our mind in neutral. You know, we're just kind of waiting until it's all over, and then we'll get it back in gear when we go get something to eat. But I want you to get your mind in gear, all right? So I want you to just think about some things. I want you to answer these questions for me just so that you, I know that you're thinking this morning. How, what is 2 plus 2? For the rest of you, it's 4. <laughs> that, when I said I want you to answer, that means everybody answers, all right? Unless you don't, don't know the right answer, then just be quiet, okay? And just say, uh-huh, that's right. So 2 plus 2 is equals 4. What is 3 times 3? 9. That's good, All right. Well, what is what is five squared? Wow. What was it? Wow. Twenty-five. Okay, I started I heard somebody go bula bula. Uh, yeah, I know you know what it was. Uh-huh. All right. What is the square root of thirty-six? Oh, you're smart group. How many sides does a pentagon have? Five. five. You are brilliant. What's our What's our national capital? What's the state capital of Alabama? Good. Are you awake? The reason I want you to wake, because you're going to have to use your brain today, all right? Because I'm going to share with you verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4 are called, their parallel verses. Now, remember that whenever we were given this, it was written to us, there were not verses, okay? The verses and chapters have been added so that we'll know where we are in those passages. But it's just a letter that's written. But for our sake, I want you to notice that in this particular part of Isaiah 53, in verses 3 and 4, they are parallel passages, all right? Parallel passages that are going to do and deal with this servant that Isaiah is talking about. Now, let's remember about the servant, what we talked about last week. He talked about this one who's coming, who's going to be the suffering servant And he tells us a number of things about how he's going to come. We talked about that last week. He said, first of all, he's not going to be dropped from the sky as a man. He's going to come as a baby. He's going to grow up as a child. He's going to grow up a child among us. So when we're looking for this Messiah or this suffering servant, we ought to be looking for a child whenever he's going to be born. Just as Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Right? It says that he's going to come in a time when it's a parched land. Like a tender shoot, he's going to come up in the midst of parched land. Talking about the, that the society itself and, and everything about it does not look like it's going to be a spiritual awakening. Not going to be a spiritual time. But out of that, there's going to be this root. And it's the root of David, which is the promised king of the lineage of David is going to be there. But also is going to be the root that's going to be the church, his church, in this day and time. And we know that the Lord Jesus springs up in the midst of of the darkest of times. For it's been 400 years since they received the word from God until John the Baptist comes and prepares the way for Jesus. We know Jesus is the root and the offspring of David based on Revelation 22. And we know that he is the head of his church, right? Just as that has been described. It says that he is not, does not have majesty or royalty or something we'd look upon him. In other words, when you're going to look for this one who's coming as the Messiah, as the suffering servant, don't go look in the palace. Look somewhere else. And he wasn't going to be born in a palace. He was born in a stable. And he wasn't raised in a palace. He was raised in a carpenter's home. He was a common man who ministered to common people. Amen? And that's a good thing because most of us are common people. Amen? That's true. So it tells us about who he is and where he's coming and how he's going to be. Now, in verses 3 and 4, it talks about what's going to happen, what he's going to experience in his life. And then he talks about how that affects us, those parallel passages in verses 3 and 4. I want to show you why I would call those parallel. Because there are words in both of those verses, or at least in this section, there'll be words that are used twice, sometimes three times. Why in the world would you use the same words over and over again because they are parallel? Listen to what it says in verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 53. Here he says, He, talking about this servant, was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was, here's that word again, despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely, here's that word again, our griefs. He himself bore, and our, here it is again, sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves, here's the word again, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You see those duplicate words? The word despised is duplicated. The word sorrows is duplicated. The word grief or uh, grieving is duplicated. The word esteem, it is duplicated. So in those two verses, why would you use the same phrase twice? I mean, if you said it once, wouldn't that be sufficient? Well, the reason it is, is because verse 3 and verse 4 picture something totally different. The first verse, verse 3, and actually it's part of verse 3 and the very last phrase of verse 4 is going to paint a picture generally of this servant that Isaiah says is coming from God. It's just a general picture of what this person's life is going to be like. Not specifically, but generally what is going to be the characteristics of this servant who's coming from God. What's it going to be like? Then Verse 4 becomes the application, or what I would call the aha experience that Isaiah sees the remnant of Israel will understand and that the church today can grasp. Who he is generally, and then this aha experience. That happens in verse 4. Let me show you what I mean by that. First of all, let's look at verse 3. And let's look generally at the description of this servant who's coming from God. It says there in verse 3, he was despised. Now, as you're taking notes, write this down. Despise simply means to give no attention to. To think as common. To just pay no attention as though they were there. To look over them. Luther in his commentary says to estimate as nothing, (laughs) to estimate as nothing. And when it's talking about this one who's coming, it's talking about somebody who's going to come in this world and people are not going to, by the masses, gravitate towards him. They're going to, in many ways, ignore him. And in many ways, in that particular time, they're going to ignore him and they're going to ignore his teachings. Well, that's a picture of what happened to Jesus. Whenever Jesus came, there, there were not large crowds that followed him, it was just a, a few. Small gatherings that would follow him. Oh, I know when it came to feeding the 5,000 or feeding the 4,000 that there were people everywhere. And I know when there were people who wanted to be healed by him, there were people who would gather around and press upon him. But when it came to following Jesus, when it came to being a disciple, when it came into counting the cost, you'll see in just a moment that there were not a lot of people. And many, many people just never even realized who he was or paid much attention to who Jesus was. So he was not... Esteemed, he was despised. And it says, not only was he despised, he was forsaken of men. Forsaken of men, that means to, to be rejected by men. I mean, he was just outright rejected by men. I'll give you an example in just a moment. It, it, it means either initially he was rejected or eventually he was rejected. They were not going to accept him as Lord and as Savior. The word there, forsaken, literally means to to hold aloof, to hold at a distance. They weren't going to commit themselves totally to him. They, they'd watch what he did. They'd see what he said, but they weren't going to commit themselves totally to him in regard to that. So this one who's coming, who's this servant, is one who's despised, not seen as of great value, and forsaken of men. Can I give you a few illustrations in the New Testament for that. Turn hold your hand here and turn to the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John chapter 7 verse 48, it's the Pharisees talking about how they related. Remember the Pharisees were the rulers of that day. They were the important people of that day and they tell you how they relate to this one called Jesus. They're talking to another person when they're saying this in verse 48. No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he. So what does that tell you? That the important people, the people of authority, those who who were considered in high esteem, when it came to Jesus, they didn't hold him in high regard. They basically looked over him, despised him. None of them would follow him. Except a few... If you'll go to John 3, verse 2, write that down, you find out that some of them, some of those who were in the Sanhedrin, they actually believed in Jesus, wanted to follow him. But do you know what they did? They came at, at night. John 3, 2 is, is the story of Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes and asks Jesus about, how am I supposed to have a relationship with God? And you're a teacher and teach me. And, and Nicodemus finally and ultimately comes and follows Jesus. But ha- how did he come? In the openness? No, he came out In the cover of night. He didn't want anybody to know that he was going to see Jesus. He didn't want anybody to know that he was asking Jesus those important questions. And not only that, whenever you find at the end when Jesus is actually buried, he's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus helps him. And Joseph of Arimathea was another one of those leaders, but it says he was a secret follower of Jesus. So the... Pharisees, by and large, rejected him and did not follow him. And then those who were of that leading class are of the, those important ones that you might consider. Even those who believed him, they would only come in the night or in secrecy to be with him. Well, that's not all, all that's in regard to that. It says in John 6, turn there for just a minute, in John six sixty six. At this time, Jesus had, had fed 5,000. He had done all kinds of miracles, and people were following him everywhere, it seemed like, till Jesus tells them that they're going to have to count the cost of following him. And it's going to, you have to give up your life in order to have it. You're going to have to carry the cross. He tells them all these things about discipleship and what it's going to mean. And in verse 66, it says, As a result of this, Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. In other words, they wanted to walk with him whenever he was healing people and feeding them. But whenever he began to talk to them about a commitment of their life and giving all they have and taking up the cross and following him. And all those things that they're going to have to do to be his disciples, they did what? They rejected him. They forsook him. They backed up away from him. And then, if you want to take it a step further, even those apostles and those disciples who walked with him for three years when it came to the Garden of Gethsemane and he was arrested and carried away, what did they do? In, in Matthew 26, 56, it tells you that his apostles all forsook him and they fled. Didn't they? So, what you find is what Isaiah says in 53 about this servant. Was true in Jesus. That he was not considered of great value by some important people. And his teachings were not things that they were living by. And and he was ministering in the midst of not masses. But small groups of people who would follow him. And and that people did forsake him. And they were rejecting him. See it's a picture of Jesus. And that's what it says about this particular servant in Isaiah 53. He will be despised. And forsaken. But that's not all. Go back to 53. Look what it says. He is a man of sorrows. This servant of God, this one coming from God, is going to be a man of sorrows. Now that word sorrows there is the, is the picture of of every kind of infirmity, every kind of pain, every kind of agony that could be in life. It could be physical sufferings. It can be mental sufferings. It can be spiritual sufferings. It's just the fact that these sorrows are the evidence of the consequences of sin. When sin entered into the world, sin brought sorrow into this world. And this one who's the suffering servant is going to come in the midst of this world and he's going to be a man of sorrows. He's going to have sorrow because he sees the consequences of sin affecting his own life as well as the consequences of sin affecting people's lives all around him. That's why Jesus, when he ministered, he walked through and he saw people with physical needs. He saw one who was blind. He felt compassion with them and he healed them because that blindness was a consequence of sin. He saw one who was lame and he healed him that he might walk. Why? Because that lameness was a consequence of sin. He saw one who could not speak or could not hear and he ministers to them because it's the consequences of sin he sees that one who is overcome by demons and is demon possessed and is out of their mind and he sees and has compassion on that person because he's sorrowful for them because of the consequences of sin See, in his own life and ministry, he realized and saw the consequences of sin, how it affected physically, mentally, spiritually, and he felt sorrow and compassion for those and would minister to them. And would minister to them. But not only that, he lived in this world of sin. That means that whatever you faced in your life, Whatever difficulty you had, whatever pain, whatever sorrows you might experience or suffering you might have, the Lord Jesus experienced that while he walked here on this earth. We get some kind of idea, well, he was absolutely perfect. So because he was perfect, he walked here and he never did anything. I've heard people, they've asked me questions that, well, what was Jesus like whenever he was a baby? He was a baby. You mean Jesus had a wet diaper? Yeah, he sure did. He certainly did. It's as though Jesus is perfect, so he never messed up a diaper. He just came here two days old. He was handling everything. No, that's not Jesus walked in this world. He was perfect at every stage of his life in regard to sin. But it says that he was tempted in every way like us except without sin. So whatever sorrow you face, whatever agony, whatever suffering you had, the Lord Jesus has been through that even before he gets to the cross. And then at the cross, he goes through what is a scourging and a pain and an agony that we cannot even relate to. He went through those sorrows as the consequences of sin. So Isaiah is saying, this servant who's coming, this one who's the anointed of God who's coming, he's going to be a man of sorrows. But he says he's also going to be acquainted with grief. He's going to be acquainted with grief. When you live in this world, you're going to have grief. You're going to have times of grief. He did too. You know, some of them recorded, and some of them we can speculate about. One thing, he had a time of grief, I believe, because his daddy died. And you say, well, how in the world do you know his daddy died? Because he was the oldest son, and when he's hanging on the cross dying, he tells John, who was his beloved disciple, John, I want you to take care of my mom. Now, the only reason he would tell her, tell John to take care of his mom is because his dad was not living and he would have responsibility of the welfare of his mother. If his dad was still living, his dad would be taking care of his mom. And so he experienced that grief. I really believe that in my heart, but I can tell you this without question. He experienced the grief of somebody he loved dearly. His name was John the Baptist. Go and read that in the gospel story. It says, when he gets word of John, that John had been beheaded. Could you imagine this? Somebody that you love, somebody who was your forerunner, somebody who paved the way for you. He said John was the greatest man born of woman. That's what he said about John. And then to find out that John was, was dead, but not only was dead, he was ruthlessly killed by a horrible king. In some kind of game he's playing, and John is dead. You know what it says, Jesus? Jesus went up to be alone. He needed to go be alone because of the grief that he had within his heart and his life. That's recorded in the Word of God. But but not only is it the matter that he had times of grief in regard to that, he had other times of grief. You, you remember when the rich young ruler, that outstanding young man, comes and he wants to know what he has to do to have eternal life. And, and Jesus tells him, This is what you must do. And he says, I've done all those things. He said, Well, you need to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler says, I possess much. And, and he walks away and does not do what Jesus says. And Jesus has compassion on him, but he feels for him because he has refused. He's refused the gift of eternal life. He's refused the gift. Jesus felt grief over people who rejected the opportunity, who rejected the message, who rejected him. He felt that time of grief. So it says that he was one of sorrows, a man of sorrows, and also acquainted with grief. But look what else it says in verse 3. And like one from whom men hide their face. It says he is going to be one where men would hide their face. Now, it can mean two things. One is that he would be so holy and so set apart and so distinctly different from them. That men who are in sin have a hard time looking at a righteous man in his face. And therefore, Jesus is so holy and righteous that people wouldn't want to look at him and be confronted with him. In his face. But the second of those thoughts is this that what is going to eventually happen to this servant, men are not going to want to look upon. And what's it talking about? It's talking about that ultimate price that he's going to pay when he's going to be scourged and beaten right to the point of death. And then he's going to be carried to a cross and nailed on a cross and hung between heaven and earth in in a pitiful, Horrible picture that no one would want to look at. No one would want to look upon his face because of that suffering, because of what it says in the very last phrase of verse 4. Listen, what it says He was smitten of God and afflicted. No one would want to look upon him because he experienced being smitten of God and afflicted. Wow. Now you know an interesting thing about that particular statement it 's a parallel to the book of job, to the book of Job. You remember Job? Had the worst day you could ever imagine. Remember, he lost all his possessions, he lost all of his children, he lost everything. And then, whenever that wasn't enough, he was struck by physical balls, and he's sitting out there and he's scraping his sores in sackcloth and ashes. He's in a miserable state, and he is a man of sorrows. Then he has three friends to come visit him. You remember those three friends? <laughs> You remember them? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Those three friends came to, to minister to him. They came and they sat there for a number of days with him. That's a pretty good friendship, to be willing to say, a number of days. And then each one of them begins to make a speech to Job. And this is what they're saying Job, we're so sorry that you are suffering. We're so sorry that this, these things have happened to you. We're so sorry that you are full of grief and acquainted. We're sorry for that happening. But, Job, what we're wanting to help you find out is what in the world did you do? What did you do? What, what was the sin that you committed? Because you obviously committed a horrible sin for you to go through that kind of suffering, that kind of pain. For, see, in their mind, it was this, that you would recognize the severity of sin based on the degree of suffering. In other words, if you had great suffering, it's because you had great sin. That was their mindset. And so when it comes to them, they're looking at at Job when Job's done nothing wrong. And they're saying, Job, what have you done to cause God to do this to you? He said, that's exactly the way this servant will be viewed by men. He'll be viewed in the same way. They'll see him, and as he is going through this horrible suffering, which we know is the cross, when he's been scourged, beaten to the point of death, and hanging on a cross, there will be those people who will be mocking him and looking at him, and the entire question is this, what horrible thing have you done where God would let you be smitten like this? What horrible thing have you done that caused you to be hung on that cross? And they wagged their heads upon him as he paid that price on the cross. Beaten, scourged to the point that no one would want to look on his face. Have you ever had some situation in your life where something happened, a tragedy happened, and you didn't want to look at it? You want to turn your face away. You didn't want to have that image of that picture in your mind. That's the picture. What Jesus did, he paid so horribly for it. He was smitten because of sin. And therefore, no one looks on his face. Well, Job's three friends weren't right. But that's a picture of where we are. Because, see, many of us were just like Job's three friends when it comes to this suffering servant. People in the world are like that, about the suffering servant. What in the world did they do to deserve that? What sin did they commit for that to happen to, to them? What did Jesus do that caused him to be hung on that cross? Because he is a man of sorrows, and he has been forsaken, and he was despised, and he was beaten, and smitten, and afflicted. Why? Why? That's where verse 4 comes in. That's where verse, the last phrase of verse 3 and verse, that's where you got to get to. Listen, At this point, Isaiah, remember this is a prophecy. Isaiah has an aha experience. You know what an aha experience is? It's when you don't understand a thing until finally something else happens and you have that aha experience. I remember having it in a math class. Did you ever have a math class? And you're sitting there and they're teaching math and you're like, I have no idea what in the world. I will never be able to pass this test until they finally do one more problem and you get it. And it's like, "Aha! Now, now I know. Now I understand. That's what this part of Isaiah 53 is all about. Now, understand, this is Isaiah talking 700 years before this servant is coming. And he's talking about what he gets in his own mind. He's going to talk about what a remnant of Israel is going to understand, just a remnant, and what the church has the opportunity to grasp in full measure. He's going to come to understand why this suffering servant had to suffer. Listen is what it says there in verse. Three, last statement. He was despised, listen now, and we did not esteem him. Do you hear what it said? He begins to talk about we. He's not talking about what he was like. He's talking about our relationship. He said he was despised and and he was forsaken and we did not esteem him. I'm just as guilty as anyone. It's not what the world is. I'm just as guilty because I didn't realize how important he was. I didn't realize why he came. I didn't realize the purpose of his mission. I didn't grasp that and hold that. I didn't know. We did not esteem him. Then he goes on and tells you about the suffering. Look what he says in verse 4. Surely our griefs. He himself bore. Why is this suffering servant going to suffer? Not because of his sin. Not because of what he did. Not because of what he deserved. Not because God had to smite him because of his actions. But rather, he says, we come to realize that that the grief that he has, he is bearing our grief. It's our grief that he bears. And not only that, and it's our sorrows he carried. He didn't have to, but he reaches down and he picks them up. He didn't have to, but he says, I don't want you to bear those sorrows. I will bear those sorrows. I will carry that grief. I will do this for you. And I'm going to take it. I'm going to place it upon me. I'm going to place it upon me. So the reason that this suffering servant is going to suffer is not because of what he did. It's what we did. And Isaiah says, it's my sin that he's going to pay for. He says for that remnant of Israel who's going to believe in him, it's for their sin that he died. And for us in the church age, it's because of our sin that he suffered. It's ours. He goes on. And he says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him as stricken. He says, now that I understand, now that I understand why he died and what he did, I esteem him while he is yet stricken. In other words, It's not that I don't want to look upon him. It's the fact that I would esteem him because of what he did for me. I deserve to die on that cross. I deserve to pay the price for my sin. I deserve to be smitten of God, however severe he would want to smite me because of my sin. But he says, I look upon him who is smitten and I esteem him for he has taken my place. He has taken my place. That's why Paul says, I glory in the cross. Why would Paul say I glory in the cross? Because it's there at the cross that my sins were paid for by this one who is the suffering servant. We know him to be Jesus. And therefore, we glory at the cross. We glory of what he did on the cross. And he is esteemed and worthy of all praise, honor, glory, whatever can be given to him because he did it for me. He did it for me. Now, hold on a second. Listen to me. If you miss anything, do not miss this. Where you sit today, where you sit today in this church today You're in one of those two verses. Did you know it? You're you're either in in, in verse 3 where you say, boy, I know about historical Jesus, and I know that he died on a cross. I know he suffered all kind of agony, and I know these things happen. I understand that. I see that. I grasp that. I know it. All right? That's verse 3. For you to know that is good and wonderful. That's why it was written by Isaiah for you to grab hold of that. All right? You need to know that, what Jesus did. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is do you know verse 4? And do you understand that what Jesus did, he did for you? Do you understand the sin that he paid for, it was yours. The sorrow that he bore was yours. The grief that he carried was yours. Do you understand that what he did, he did for you? And if you do understand that, then you ought to esteem him, the one who was stricken for you. You ought to give him glory, honor, and praise, and commit your life totally and absolutely to him, because you know that the suffering servant is Jesus who paid the price for you. And the reason you have hope, the reason you have the glory of heaven looking at you, the reason you have the promise of eternal life, all of that's because what Jesus did for you. It is not enough just to know he did it. You've got to know he did it for you. He did it for you. And you glory in what he did. Do you understand if we really grabbed hold of that and we really understood that all that suffering and all that pain and all that scourging and all that agony and hanging between heaven and earth nailed to a cross is because of me. He did it for me. My life would be totally different. Amen. For if he died for me, I certainly ought to be living for him if he loved me enough to pay the price on that Calvary tree, I ought to love him enough to live for him and esteem him and glory in him every day. The real question is, have you had that aha experience? Do you, do you know that the suffering servant described in verse 3 did it all for you? And if you put your faith and trust and said, I believe you, Jesus, did that for me. I believe you paid the price for me. And I thank you. And I praise you. And I want you to have first place in my life. I don't want to look over you. I want you to be in me. And I want to live for you. Have you done that? If not, you need to do that today. He is worthy. He is worthy.
0: That concludes this week's message from Brother Mack. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world.